Welcome to an oh, welcome to another edition of what we're calling the Advent edition of the Good Street Podcast, daily podcast from here until uh, sometime during the holiday season. This is Gary Wolf, and I'm delighted. Well, what Jonathan and I decided to do was to go over books that we like this year and that we're going to recommend, and talk to the authors of those books. And so I'm delighted to have Lavi Tidar with us, whose Neom is one of my favorite books of the year because it's got lots of Easter eggs for old-fashioned science fiction readers like myself. So thanks for being here, uh, Lavi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Merry uh, early Christmas. Um, there's actually, you actually have two books out this year, um, and one of which I confess I haven't read because I don't have a copy of it. Uh, Neom is uh, set in the Central Station universe, obviously, and... Maror is kind of a, I've seen it described as a Jewish godfather, as Israeli noir, as historical fiction. Uh, so I'll just let you describe the two books you've had this year. Well, one <laughs> sort of came, I mean, I've got three books out this okay, year, but one of, them is, one of them is an anthology, so we won't right, okay. count it. But the best of all is F2. Um, no, I think Neon sort of only came about because I was in the midst of writing Maraud, which is this big, sprawling historical epic based on absolutely true events and characters, occasionally with their names slightly changed for legal reasons, uh-huh. and because they're not the nicest people. Um, but in the middle of that, we had, I think, the second lockdown, and I kind of, my mind couldn't really cope with it at that point. And I ended up writing about a robot who buys a rose and takes it into the desert um, just to just to kind of get away from everything. So it wasn't my plan in any shape or form to write a book. It just sort of happened. And it was one of those rare books when I was writing it just to find out what happens next. Uh-huh. And, um, and that was great. It kind of got me through, you know, that horrible winter. I think it was... Or twenty, I don't, I don't. My sense of time has been messed up in the in the pandemic. I think that's true of everybody. But the the sense I get from reading Neom is that you were having a lot of fun doing it. It was a lot of fun, and I mean, you know, it was. I love that universe that it takes place in. So it's always fun to visit it. I usually just do it in short stories. I wasn't really expecting to to write a novel. Um, but partly because I don't know how to write novels. So <laughs> it's. Well, and the, other, the other thing which I think is fascinating for, for, for any science fiction reader is that this is this far distant uh, future city, which actually is being built right now. So uh, the, we, we can kind of connect ourselves with it chronologically. Have you been to Neom? No, it sort of came from, you know, going to Egypt and the Sinai quite a lot and gazing across at the Saudi mountains and dreaming of, I mean, it wasn't the most welcoming country until very recently, and even now I'm not entirely sure how welcoming it is. But I came across Neon, the idea of this futuristic city, back, you know, a few years ago when there was really nothing more than a YouTube marketing video for uh-huh. it. And I thought it was such a, a gloriously ridiculous science fictional concept that I picked it. What I didn't expect is for them to actually go ahead with building it. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about this at an event a couple of weeks ago, and someone came up to me afterwards, and they said they were a civil engineer, and they're looking at jobs at ne- in Neom at the <laughs> in the moment. You know, which apparently pay very, very well. Um, but I was like, I'm glad I got the book out before they actually built this thing, um, and I got to yeah, all right. I got to leave my stamp on what it should be. 
I think, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think that back in the 50s, somebody, and it might have been James Blish, and I might be imagining this, had written a novel set in Brasilia before Brasilia had actually been carved out of the jungle. And it was, and this reminded me a little bit of that because you're sort of giving them a blueprint which they don't want for this city. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of, you know, the, the, the famous one is uh, obviously Herzl's um, Alt Neuland, you know, Old New Land, which kind oh, yeah. of gives a blueprint for a Jewish state in Palestine a long time before um, one existed. And actually, the, the author never got to see no. one take place. And I, you know, and that's something I dealt with in Unholy Land, because it was so interesting to look at this utopian vision on the one hand and the reality that actually emerged on the other um but yeah no it's just, it's as much it's as much a surprise to me that they're actually building it and i kind of dread dread to think what uh what it would be like well let's move on to the one the questions which we said we were going to be asking everybody what have you been reading lately well, as you know, I quit the Washington Post yes. science fiction fantasy book review column um, earlier this year that I was doing with Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And I think we both reached a point where we just couldn't keep up uh-huh. with science fiction fantasy. And, um, you know, I think three years is a good run, kind of quit while you're ahead. Yeah. But the result was that I don't have to read science fiction fantasy anymore. Um for a little while, which has just been really, really nice. Um, I think the only science fiction I sort of went back to read, which again is an old title, was A Night in the Lonesome October, Roger Zelazny's <laughs> sort of classic Halloween Halloween novel. And the reason was because I wanted to write a story that was kind of referencing that. And it's a story called The Portal Keeper. Mm-hmm. which uh, was just published in Uncanny. And the idea was basically, I wanted to write about the the person who has to maintain the fantasy portal that everyone else uses to go on adventures. Yeah. Um, but never gets to go anywhere. And I kind of did that in that Zilazny structure and style as, a, as, as homage. So, you know, but it's one of my favorite books. It's a book I keep coming back to. And I think it was, I think it was one of Zilazny's strongest books. I think it was his last one, and it was, it was of his later like, works. It's clearly the best. I remember it had has a wonderful Gayon Wilson cover on it. Right, exactly. The illustrations are fantastic, but it felt like a return to form for Zilazny, yeah. and then obviously it ended up being his last book, which which is a is a shame. But but that was, I think, that was the last title. Um, other than, again, I was kind of looking at old science fiction short stories from the 50s. I, I read a um, oh, Frederick Brown. I think I read this classic Frederick Brown story that I never read um, called The Last Train. I think that's what it is. Possibly. It's, I'm, I'm sure I've read it, and I'm sure. I, is it one of the short, short stories? or just One a- of the short stories, like three pages long. It's very, very good, and... Um, Again, I was I was just in the mood for writing sto- science fiction stories that had a slightly old-fashioned 1950s mm-hmm. feel to them. So I was reading that to just get the the sense of it, you know, the vibe. And I did the same thing with a short story this year called, or maybe it was last year, again, time. But I, I did a story called Blue and Blue and Blue and Pink, and that was sort of going back to early Philip K. Dick stories and just to get a, a feel, yeah. you know, I really like Philip K. Dick's early stories that were very off the wall, weren't they? Uh, Beyond Lies the Wub and things right. like that. that um, and and, and that, one, of the, one of the appeals for me of 
of the central station stories in Neom is that there are robots in there that are Philip K. Dick robots and there are Clifford Simak robots and there's C.L. Moore is in there somewhere and Simak. Yeah. Simak. I mean, Simak is in Fondly Fahrenheit from uh, Bester is in Best, there. Yeah. Uh, one of the Philip K. Dick robots is in there. Um, Simak's my favorite. I mean, you know, I just I think he's he's kind of being forgotten now, isn't he? I don't think people read him as much. Not as much. I mean, I put him in that Library of America volume of the 50s, and a lot of people had never heard of him, apparently, which is really no. sad because he created his own voice. I mean, the, the thing that gives me hope as a writer, you know, um, is that my agent represents the Roger Zelazny estate. You know, and I'm a huge Zelazny fan. And it's really interesting to see a writer who died, what, 20, almost 30 years ago now? Yeah. I think whose who's best work really dates back to the 1960s, um, you would say, still getting published around the world. You know, there's a new edition coming out in Russia. There's a new one in Bulgaria. There's a new, a new one in Korea. And I thought, if anything gives me hope for the future, is, is the fact that we do hold on to the books that, you know, that make a difference. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think they, they come back. Are there any um, seasonal books that you recommend or that you go to this time of year because there's a whole clump of holidays at the end of the year, not just New Year's and Hanukkah and, and Christmas and so forth? Is there any kind of seasonal reading that you do or recommend? No, I don't. I never really understood that tradition of holiday fiction, yeah. like which is, I think, is a is an is an American thing, or at least an Anglo thing, um, you know. So I, I was always bemused by the idea of the Christmas stories and the, yeah. the Halloween stories and all the rest of it. No, what I did discover, I mean, for me, December is I, you know, try and get away on holiday and just uh-huh. actually read for fun. And what I read for fun tends to be crime, um, crime novels of various kinds. But I just discovered the Slough House books by Mick Heron you know, which were made into a TV show by Apple recently. And they are fantastic. You know, there's eight of them now. And it's essentially, John. if John Le Carre was writing about terrible spies, you know, um, they're just terrible spies. It's, they're books about the worst, the most incompetent spies um, you can get and how they mess up everything they do. And they're, they're absolutely wonderful. And I think I was a bit snobbish about them when I first saw them because the covers looked very, you know, generic sort of covers, like what you get on Amazon. And I yeah. I was completely fooled by that because they are they're absolutely wonderful. And then it turns out everyone I talk to now has already read them. So I'm behind everyone. And I'm trying to keep the last two for Christmas. <laughs> But they're very easy to read, and as soon as you read one, you want to read the next one. So I'm having to kind of take a short, short break from because there won't be. There's only two more left, and then I don't know when the next one will be out. Well, speaking of the next one, the final question we have to ask is: What is next for Lobby Tidar? What are we going to expect in the new year? I mean, first of all, Moror. We should mention that Moror is not really a speculative novel, but it seems to have the scope of one. The reviews I've read. But, right. I mean, it's it's an epic. It's a historical epic. But no, it doesn't have anything to do with genre fiction or besides fiction fantasy anyway at all. Well, is this what your future portends? More mainstream fiction? or um... It would be nice to do a bit of both, to be uh-huh. honest. I mean, I don't want to really put one aside for the other. Um, the next book in the UK is a follow-up to Moraes, so it's another sort of historical epic mm-hmm. about a single, about four generations of a single family 
from the 1940s to the 2000s. It's essentially, I, I basically say it's about the, the worst family you can imagine and how, the, <laughs> how they all die horribly. And it leans into the Gothic a little bit. It leans into noir, obviously. It's historical fiction. It was very interesting researching a lot of it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm definitely committed to doing more of that stuff because it's, it's very appealing to me. But the next book in this, the next book from Tachyon, the next book that will be available in the States is a novel that I've been working on on and off. It's had so many drafts since, I don't know, must have been almost a decade by the time it comes out. Oh. And it's a, it's a book called The Circumference of the World. And it sort of combines a bit of literary fiction, a bit of hard-boiled fiction, and a bit of 1950s sci-fi. Um, and it's essentially, the way I describe it is, what if L. Ron Hubbard was right about everything? Oh, dear. Right. I mean, the idea was, what if a science fiction writer from the 1950s just happened to come across a ridiculous hypothesis about the nature of the world that just might be correct, you know? So it's sort of a love letter to the golden age of science fiction in that sense. Or not really a love letter, because it, it isn't very kind about it. Well, no, um, I, I understand that. It's hard to talk about that without lapsing into parody to something. But Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, yeah. a part, there's a part that is sort of a pastiche of a 1950s science fiction story, but I kept it quite <laughs> short because they're not, you know. But you mentioned uh, earlier, you mentioned Frederick Brown and his first novel, well, not, it wasn't his first novel, I think maybe his first science fiction novel was called What Mad Universe. And right. it's similar. It, it, it's a parody of, of pulp science fiction. Uh, well, I don't think this is a parody, though. I mean, I think it is quite heartfelt, but it, it's done in, a diff, in, in different styles, in different yeah. sort of eras. But a part of it is looking at the Golden Age writers, their interactions from the point of view of a fictionalized, let's say, Elwin Hubbard, you right. know. Um, so you will find Asimov popping up and Bester popping up and Heinlein popping up. And, oh, it sounds uh, fascinating. A little, and, um, and, you know, a part of it is also sort of a love letter to the vanished bookshops of London. So yeah. uh, I think Maxim Jakubowski used to run Murder One in London for many years. He sort of pops up in the book. And Ted and Eric from the Fantasy Centre uh, right. which was one of those iconic bookshops. And I heard Eric just died last week i think and ted died a few years ago so it's really you know it's almost like a historical historical fiction at that point even though i'm only writing about 2001 yeah it feels like such a long time ago so it's partly that it's partly set in the south pacific during world war ii it's partly set in 1950s california it's it's really got a bit of everything in in a in a pretty small package does it have a title um, what it, what does it have a title yeah, it's called The Circumference of the World. Okay. Well, that's the title we settled on eventually. Uh, <laughs> great fun. And, it, and it's, not, it's not a long book, but it does pack a lot in. I actually cut it down. It, it was a 90,000-word book at some point, and we really cut it down to the bone, and, uh, you know, I think it's as tight as can be. Great. Um, yeah. Well, I kind of I feel like I'm losing. Obviously, I should point out that it's got nothing to do with the real Elron Hubbard or the, you know. No, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I understand what, what your concern is, but Elron Hubbard has shown up as characters in a couple of novels that I've read so far. And as far as I know, those people have not been buried in lawsuits yet. 
So. Well, he shows up. Interestingly, one of the research things I was using was a book from 1943 called Rocket to the Morgue. Yeah, by Anthony Boucher. Anthony Boucher, and he, you know, and it's it's uh it's one of those novels where the names have been changed to protect the innocent right. sort of thing. But it's absolutely fascinating because he writes about Heinlein and. Hubbard and all the rest of the sort of 1940s writers, and he the, the, even the way depicts Hubbard then, you know, it's yeah. I I have a lot of affection for Alvin Hubbard. Weirdly, uh, I find him such an interesting character, maybe a deeply flawed character, but I think that's what appeals to me in a way. And the thing that he did that is so interesting is that he did manage to start his own religion. You know, he did make yeah. it to the top of the world, and then he gave it all up to write science fiction again. Right. Uh, and not- I think really what he missed, I think he just missed being yeah. being a pulp writer. He missed hanging out with the guys, yeah, and you know, talking uh, talking about them. And he never really had that experience again. I think once he became uh, what he became, he became a guru. Well, we've already kept you beyond the we said ten minutes. We're closing on on twenty, but because it's always fascinating to to chat. But again. Uh, on behalf of the Coot Street Podcast, thank you, Lavi. Thank you, Gary. And I'll uh, go fulfill my duties. All right. Well, talk to you. here.